Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, dedicated to exploring the art and culture of Latter-day Saints through interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars. The podcast is presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. Today we are broadcasting a lecture given by the scholar Rebecca Ryan Clark, Historical Research Associate for Better Days 2020, an organization celebrating and educating the public on landmark moments in women's suffrage. The subject of Rebecca Ryan Clark's lecture is Alice Merrill Horn, a key figure in the suffrage movement and in the development of artistic institutions in the West, including several museums, government programs, and the careers of artists like Minerva Teichert. The lecture begins with an introduction by the CEO of Better Days, Nyland McBain. All right. It is my pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker tonight, and the reason that I have been asked to do this is because uh, Rebecca is actually part of a team of, uh, that, that is called Better Days 2020, and we are a nonprofit that popularizes Utah women's history through education, art, events, and legislation. And we were founded about two years ago when we recognized that Utah was actually the first place a woman cast a ballot under an equal suffrage law. So that happened in 1870, uh, just a few blocks from here. The building where that happened is actually still standing. It's called the Council Hall Building. It's right across the street from the State Capitol Building. And so we formed an organization to celebrate the 150th anniversary of that first vote in 2020. And you may also be aware that the um, 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, uh, which extended women's voting rights throughout the nation, is also being celebrated next year, the centennial of that. Um, I will actually point out that Micah is standing next to a portrait of the first female voter in uh, in the United States. That's Sarah Young, and she is the one who voted in 1870. And yesterday was her birthday. So um, we love the women of Utah. We have built our whole organization studying the remarkable legacy of women here in this state uh, and among our own heritage and our own people. And Rebecca is one of the historians who has been excavating this work for us over the past couple of years because most of these stories, including Seraph's, had been forgotten or lost. Um, the story of the woman that we're gonna be talking about, Rebecca's gonna be talking about today, tonight is a little bit better known um, and she'll probably explain why and how we what we know about her. Uh, but our project is dedicated to uncovering the remarkable legacy of Utah women uh, for, from about the last 150 years. Uh, and so it, we've been delighted to work with an amazing group of historians like Rebecca uh, to excavate this history. And we just thought it was such an amazing connection with this effort here at the Certain Women Art Show to, uh, to amplify the work of Utah women, not just in the past, but in, in the present as well. So um, I'm going to read uh, Rebecca's biography. I will also mention, in case she doesn't, because I'll, I'll, I'll be the, the promoter here, that these, these, uh, these books that are for sale and these trading cards and these images, which I think you'll probably talk about a little bit, will you, or do you want me to talk about them? 
Okay. I will talk about these. So I mentioned that public art and art commissions are one of the things that we do to popularize Utah women's history and to bring it into our mainstream culture. Um, one of the first things we did as an organization was to commission Brooke Smart, who is a wonderful LDS woman artist here um, and fits very nicely into this show to illustrate 50 of the Utah women that we have chosen to, am to amplify from history. And so you have four of her portraits up here, um, one of, of the women that we're going to be talking about focusing most tonight, but she has done 50 of these. And 25 of them are represented in our book, and all 50 are represented in the trading cards along with biographies. So these are for sale tonight, um, and we would love to, to have, send you home with, uh, with one of them. So um, we're grateful to have been work, working with Brooke uh, on this remarkable project and, and see her own career uh, amplified and, and extended because of this project. It's something we're incredibly proud of, and we're, we're really, really proud to support all of the female artists who are featured here tonight. So um, Rebecca Ryan Clark is the Historical Research Associate for Better Days 2020. She holds a law degree from the J. Reuben Clark Law School at Brigham Young University and attended Harvard Law School as a visiting student. She earned her bachelor's degree in American history and literature from Harvard, where she wrote her honors thesis on Utah's post-statehood participation in the national women's suffrage movement. She participated in a postgraduate research fellowship on Latter-day Saint women in the 20th century at the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute of Church History. After practicing law for four years in Boston, she worked as a research historian at the Church History Department and taught the American Foundations course at BYU-Idaho as an online adjunct faculty member. She is currently member, a member of Mormon Women's History Initiative team, and her upcoming book, Thinking Women, A Timeline of Utah Suffrage, which she co-authored with the Better Days 2020 historical director, Catherine Kinnerman, is being published by Deseret Book and will be available in stores by the end of December. So there's nobody more perfect to uh, be, be representing Better Days 2020 here tonight than Rebecca. Thank you, Nyland, for that introduction. I am so thrilled to be here today and to just soak in the energy and the spirit of this amazing building and to have Sarah looking on and cheering me on. I mean, it's just, it's perfect. Um, Pablo Picasso once said, the purpose of art is washing the dust of daily life off our souls. That's a beautiful thought. But our very own Alice Merrill Horn, who was hailed Utah's first lady of the arts, went even further in her definition of the importance of art, arguing that art not only reveals our souls, by brushing off that daily life dust, um, but it also improves them. She explained, life in the influence of art trains the soul to respond to the godlike in man and nature, to feel the beautiful and to cherish and follow higher ideals. Soul greatness is the ultimate end and aim of all efforts. Art evokes emotion. It engenders introspection. It transcends the mundane, provides clarity, and can ultimately transform our natures. Art enables us to find ourselves. And as writer Thomas Merton explains, to lose ourselves at the same time. This showcase, with its theme, Statements of Purpose, seeks to illustrate, quote, 
our unique perspectives as women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and highlight the diverse artistry of our collective. Utah has a rich artistic history that began far before the first white settlers entered the Salt Lake Valley. This cumulative history of diverse artistic expression continues to shape our collective cultural identity. For the artists that are here tonight, I just have to say your work is stunning. I love this exhibition's focus on deliberate and faithful action, diversity with a unified sisterhood, and creativity with vision and purpose. These are some of the qualities of the early women in the church that first drew me to study Latter-day Saint women's history. So I first discovered that Latter-day Saint women had been at the forefront of the early suffrage movement when I was a freshman in Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's women's history class at Harvard College. This was a pivotal moment for me. Um, the story of these early sisters just spoke to me inspiring me with their great faith in the gospel and their understanding of their empowerment as women. This history sparked a lifelong passion of studying and sharing their story. It led me to switch my major, I was an English major before, switched over to history and literature. I wrote my honors thesis on Latter-day Saint activism for the National Suffrage Amendment. And after that slight detour to law school and with Micah's wife, actually, um, and practicing as a corporate litigator, that passion has now brought me back to sharing my deep love of learning about these strong thinking women. Tonight, I would like to focus my remarks on one of my favorite certain women from Utah history that I have grown to love in the course of my research with Better Days 2020. Alice Merrill Horn was at the very center of the Intermountain art scene for decades in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. She has been described by historians as one of the most ardent art advocates the state of Utah and the Latter-day Saint Church has produced. So I like to think of Alice as a major social influencer, but long before social media. Her authenticity, her credibility, and her reach made her artistic endorsements persuasive and effective. As one contemporary noted, Alice took a leading role in making Utah art conscious. The lasting impact of her advocacy on behalf of Utah's visual arts has been immeasurable. Born in Fillmore, Utah in 1868, as the fourth of 14 children, Alice moved to Salt Lake City when she was nine years old to be a companion for her widowed grandmother. Her childhood was far from ordinary. As the granddaughter of George A. Smith, Brigham Young's first counselor, and Bathsheba Smith, who became the fourth general president of the Relief Society, young Alice enjoyed elite access to the leading Latter-day Saint women who would often meet in her grandmother's parlor to discuss religious, political, and educational issues. Alice was described as dainty but indomitable and a precocious spirit. She studied with prominent Utah artists and participated in arts programs, women's suffrage, and numerous charitable organizations. 
After graduating from the University of Deseret, now the University of Utah, in 1887, Alice studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She taught school, married George H. Horn in 1890, and eventually had six children. Alice was also a prominent suffragist and the third woman to serve in the Utah House of Representatives at a time when most women in the nation couldn't even vote. Alice used her one term in office from 1899 to 1900 to advance bills promoting public health, education, and particularly, of course, the fine arts. Most notably, she authored the legislation that created the very first state-sponsored art institute in the nation, the Utah Art Institute, known today as the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. Her art bill also established a permanent state art collection known as the Alice Art Collection in her honor, which today numbers over 1,400 pieces and is valued in the millions. Alice Merrill Horn exemplifies the impact of women's political participation and social influence in early Utah. Tonight, as I share some of her history, I'd like to focus on three lessons that we learn from this extraordinary proponent of the arts. So the first lesson that we learn from Alice is that we each have a spiritual mandate to use our talents to enlighten, uplift, and edify others by reflecting the beauty around us. Alice felt divinely commissioned to her work promoting the arts among the saints. As women, as disciples, as Latter-day Saints, we have also each been commissioned to consecrate our talents to bring others to a deeper understanding of life. In late 19th century America, a national movement had emerged that promoted the unique ability of art to spiritually transform communities. Art historian Heather Belknap Jensen has described the empowering effects of this movement for women, explaining, quote, the porosity of the boundaries between the spiritual and the aesthetic, realms then gendered as female, was one of the means by which women could assume a degree of religious authority. In other words, women obtained an expanded public voice and social influence as they engaged in the intersection of these culturally sanctioned spheres of religion and art. By the turn of the century, American women were essential and authoritative participants in the sacralization or sanctifying of art and culture. Now this was particularly true in Utah as a community saturated in religiosity and theologically dedicated to a belief in our divine potential as creators. It's not surprising that Utah would embrace the spiritual dimensions of this national artistic movement. Latter-day Saints supported artistic development right from the start, believing it to be an inspired way to build the kingdom of God on earth. According to Alice, the Deseret Academy of Arts, established in Salt Lake City in 1863, was the first art school in the West. In 1890, the First Presidency of the Church set apart and financially sponsored five men to serve missions specifically to study art in Paris, which was the center of the art world at the time. These artists returned to share their skills with the saints and painted the murals in the soon-to-be-completed Salt Lake Temple. 
At least a dozen Latter-day Saint women also traveled to Paris and throughout Europe during 1890 to 1920 to study, develop their own artistic talents, and bring this refining influence back to their home in the Intermountain West. Latter-day Saint artists such as Mary Teasdale, Rose Hartwell, and Mae Jennings Farlow pioneered the way for Latter-day Saint women to study art abroad, and Alice Merrill Horn and many others followed. They immersed themselves in the European art scene, received critical training, and developed close social and professional networks with each other. Perhaps more importantly, they returned to Utah, devoted to encouraging the refining influence of art here. When they arrived back home, they found that turn-of-the-century Utah was uniquely primed for women to take a prominent role in advancing artistic development. The structure of the Relief Society and other women's organizations that flourished during this period provided a framework they could use to mobilize artistic efforts and disseminate cultural information throughout the new state. The religious identity of these organizations also made them a natural proponent of the spiritually-based promotion of visual arts. Alice Merrill Horn rose to the forefront of this movement. She described the early women of Utah as ladies of culture, refinement, and spirituality, hungering for the beautiful. For Alice, her lifelong passion for developing and sponsoring art was both personal and deeply spiritual. Like many male and female artists within her Latter-day Saint community, then as well as today, she felt a divine calling to not only cultivate her own artistic talents, but to actively foster the broad development of the arts. It was once observed that the love of beauty seemed to be a part of her very being. Writing in the Relief Society magazine in 1920, Alice described the powerful moment when she felt that she was personally commissioned by God. She recalled being in her, in her grandmother Bathsheba's parlor one day as a child with a gathering of women that included four of the first five general presidents of the Relief Society. This was an extraordinary group of women, but it was also fairly typical for young Alice. During a break in the conversation, Alice rose boldly and faithfully requested a blessing from Eliza R. Snow. Exercising spiritual gifts was commonly encouraged among women in the early church. Eliza pronounced a blessing on Alice using the gift of tongues, and Zina D.H. Young provided the interpretation. Alice recalled, in the presence of sisters Zina, Bathsheba, Rachel Grant, Emmeline B. Wells, and a dozen others I could name, she blessed me to bring forward a work which no one else could do and which would bring great joy in its accomplishment. That call has never ceased. Alice cited this blessing as the impetus behind her legislative career and her determination to bring art to the public. Pointing out the success of her efforts, she wrote, you all know the response. Every passing cloud, each hill line, each patch of color became charged with a message of beauty to a great multitude of observing and loving women. Alice then extended this divine calling to all Latter-day Saint women 
as she traced this artistic mission to the very founding of the Relief Society in 1842, when the prophet Joseph Smith turned the key to the women and opened new opportunities and better days for the women of the church. Alice urged, if God spoke to Emma Smith concerning music and art, should not we, the recipients of benefits from that turning of the key, be glad to preach the gospel of beauty? Alice repeatedly used that phrase, gospel of beauty, as she imbued the cultivation of the arts with deep spiritual significance and dedicated her life to what has been termed aesthetic evangelism. She urged women of the church to commit themselves to, quote, take up again the study of art in our society with the hope that the gospel of beauty may dispel much of the ugliness which grips our race. Remembering always that it is our privilege to flood the world with the beautiful and good. Let me repeat that last part. It is our privilege to flood the world with the beautiful and good. Take a moment and look around. We see such inspiring evidence of that gospel of beauty here in the gallery tonight, displayed by these talented female artists and their stunning works of art and faith. I think that Alice would be thrilled with this extraordinary exhibition. The second lesson that Alice teaches us is to rise up, be actively engaged in improving our communities. Alice's passion for art propelled her into public service. The territorial Utah of Alice's youth provided her access to an expanded vision of women's sphere that contrasted in many ways with the nation's prevalent cult of domesticity ideology. In fact, Alice's own grandmother was the first woman on record in Utah to publicly seek women's suffrage. During a mass meeting of Latter-day Saint women in January 1870, Bathsheba Smith made a motion that the women demand of the gov the right of franchise. Now, we don't know whether that shorthand gov from the meeting minutes meant she wanted to demand suffrage from the government or from the governor, but we do know that the women there that day recognized the power and importance of a political voice. They passed that motion. Just a few weeks later, in February 1870, the Utah territorial government unanimously passed a law granting women's suffrage. Wyoming had given women the right to vote just two months before, so Utah became the second in the United States to grant equal suffrage to its women. Alice's grandfather was the president of the Territorial Senate, known as the Utah Legislative Council. So he oversaw that historic vote. Bathsheba was then appointed by the Women's Retrenchment Association to travel to Southern Utah to, quote, preach about women's rights if she wished. When young Alice came to live with Bathsheba just a few years later, she clearly inherited a deep legacy of public service and a vision for the political impact that women can have on society. Politically, professionally, ecclesiastically, Utah women in the late 19th century engaged in a wider sphere than was available to most American women. 
Utah women gained the right to vote 50 years before the 19th Amendment secured that right for most, although certainly not all, American women. Utah women were the first in the nation, as Nyland mentioned, to vote under a full equal suffrage law because Utah held its municipal elections as well as a large general election before Wyoming held its first election, including women. Latter-day Saint women continued to actively participate in the national women's suffrage movement for the next 50 years. When federal anti-polygamy legislation repealed women's suffrage in, 1887, in 1887 in Utah, these women embraced an increasingly public role as they lobbied and petitioned Washington, D.C. in defense of their church and their own political rights. After their rights were restored with statehood in 1896, they remained actively engaged in efforts to obtain a national suffrage amendment, which was finally accomplished in 1920. Now I need to point out that at that time, these expanded opportunities were not truly accessible to all Utah women. Native Americans and other marginalized communities, for example, had to continue their struggle for citizenship, suffrage, and political rights in Utah as well as the nation for several more decades. Additionally, average members of the church did not always enjoy as visible or accessible of a role in the public sphere as the leading sisters of the church, who were primarily the delegates representing the church on the national stage. But the widespread grassroots efforts demonstrated through the local relief societies and the many county and city suffrage organizations indicates nearly unanimous support of women's suffrage activism among Latter-day Saint women. The heightened public role of Utah's women naturally coalesced with the increased spiritual commitment to the cultivation of arts in Utah. In this historical context, it is not surprising that Alice Merrill Horn turned to politics and public service to maximize her ability to share the gospel of beauty. And she was well situated to exert great influence in her community, having lived her, light in the very, her life in the very heart of the Latter-day Saint elite. When Alice was only 23 years old, she was appointed chairwoman of the Utah Liberal Arts Committee for the 1893 Chicago World's Fair Columbian Exposition. This massive event lasted for six months and more than 27 million people attended from all over the world. Utah's participation was a turning point for the church demonstrating its hope for a new post-polygamy era of unprecedented cooperation with those outside of their faith. Alice published a book of Utah women's poetry that was displayed in Chicago, and she coordinated the exhibition of Utah women's art. Her public service had begun. The year following the exposition, Alice began working again as a teacher in Salt Lake City but she strongly approved of the public school system's new art program. Her initial failed efforts to change the program prompted Alice to pursue political action. First, she convinced a former classmate to run for the Board of Education, since as a woman, she could not run herself or hold office in Utah at the time. He agreed, 
but only on the condition that Alice would do all the campaigning. <laughs> she did, and he won by a large majority. He consequently replaced the school art program with a system directly approved by Alice, providing her first political victory and meaningful evidence of the power of legislative authority. Utah became a state in 1896, and the new state constitution restored Utah women's right to vote and gave them the right to hold office. Impressed by Alice's political acumen, the Utah Democratic Party invited Alice to run for the third legislature of the new state in 1898. Alice later revealed her motivation for accepting the nomination. She said, I accepted this solely in the interest of art. I wanted to write a law on our statute books in the interest of art for the masses. In fact, before she even declared her candidacy, she had already drafted her art bill, which ultimately created the Utah Art Institute and the state's Alice Art Collection. Indicating the influence that she wielded, she was elected with a thousand votes to spare. Upon taking the oath of office, Alice was determined to use her political voice to make a difference. She coordinated her efforts with Senator Martha Hughes Cannon, the first female state senator in the United States and the only other woman serving in the Utah legislature that term. Martha and Alice decided to focus their efforts on three specific bills. So, Alice approached the Speaker of the House and requested that she be assigned to the Education, Art, and Public Health Committees. Well, he explained that the Education Committee was already filled. She countered, Mr. Speaker, I am the only woman in the House. Surely a woman should be on the Education Committee. And besides, I am a teacher. Not persuaded, he instead put her on the Rules Committee as well as the art and public health committees that she had requested. Not to be deterred, Alice arrived at her first rules committee meeting and immediately proposed that the education and art committees be merged. The motion passed unanimously and she was placed on the new education and art committee, thus cleverly achieving her original objective. Alice proved to be particularly adept time and again at such political negotiations and fearless in pursuing the causes that she believed to be for the public good. For example, when Martha Hughes Cannon, who was a prominent doctor, authored a public health bill in the Senate, Alice sponsored the bill in the House. The bill proposed a state board of health and included the first contagious disease and sanitation regulations including a controversial restriction against teachers with tuberculosis. It doesn't seem like it would be controversial, but at the time, they didn't understand that it wasn't clearly proven that it was even contagious. At a public reception that was held while the legislature was still deliberating this bill, an officer from Fort Douglas approached Alice as she stood by the governor in the receiving line. He loudly declared, Mrs. Horn, you would be surprised to know how little I care for your noble efforts to ban those teachers who have lung trouble from earning a living by teaching in your public schools. Everyone stopped and waited for her reply. 
But Alice just kept smiling and boldly responded, you might be even more astonished to know how little other person's opinions matter to me on such questions as public health. I just love her feistiness. She also proved to be a shrewd politician in securing support for her art bill. Historian Harriet Horn Arrington, one of Alice's descendants, detailed Alice's legislative career and described how she skillfully tailored her arguments to each individual representative. For example, encountering one legislator's opposition, she appealed to his main interest in bridges as she argued for the public's need for greater access to art, saying, this is just a bridge I am asking for. Here we are on the desert side. If we can get a bridge over that stream to the green meadow, there are starving flocks. He changed his vote. For the final opponent to the bill, who argued that controlling the grasshopper menace was far more important use of funds than art, Alice negotiated an unconventional deal. In exchange for his vote, she drew on her knowledge of zoology from college, and she taught him how to gather up the grasshopper eggs and boil them, resolving his problem and earning his vote. <laughs> Martha's public health bill and Alice's art bill ultimately passed both houses of Utah's legislature, largely due to the relentless efforts, the teamwork and maneuvering of these two women. To secure these bills, Alice and Martha even laid yellow flowers on the desks of each state senator and congressman. The flowers were a well-known symbol of women's suffrage and a not-so-subtle reminder of their power to mobilize the women's vote if needed. <laughs> As Utah Governor Heber M. Wells signed Alice's art bill into law in 1899, he publicly congratulated her and declared the bill the direct result of equal suffrage. Alice's art bill established the Utah Institute of Art, the first state-sponsored art agency in the nation, and an art collection that was originally named the Alice Art Collection in her honor. It included an annual art competition in which the winning artwork would be published for the state art collection, thus encouraging and compensating artists while building up the collection. For the rest of her life, Alice remained devoted to supporting and sustaining the Art Institute, running and facilitating its exhibitions, and protecting and expanding the works in that collection. The Utah Symphony and many other key arts organizations trace their roots back to her arts bill. Today, the Utah Division of Arts and Museums awards over $3.5 million in grants each year to support the arts throughout the state. During her term in the House of Representatives from 1899 to 1900, Alice's civic contributions went well beyond her arts agenda. She proposed the land grant for the establishment of a new University of Utah campus, for which she was made chairman of the University Land Site Committee. She was an early environmentalist who fought for legislative protections for wildlife prompting one of her fellow representatives to observe that she knew more about fish and game than two-thirds of the men there. 
she also introduced and championed the Free Scholarship Bill, which provided four-year college scholarships to the University of Utah School of Education. A professor of the university had made a last-minute request that Alice introduce the bill because he said, you women stick to your pet measure, and I believe if you will undertake this free scholarship bill, you will somehow coax it through. And Alice did just that. When the bill stalled in the Senate, because the Senate got angry that the House had been not passing enough of the Senate's bills, so they just denied the same amount of the House bills, she marched into the Senate president and made such compelling arguments that he changed his mind. As the governor signed this bill into law, he once again credited Alice and women's rights, citing, quote, what women's suffrage has done and is doing for education. Alice and, other, and Utah's other female legislators at the time helped prove to the nation that political rights for women were a benefit to the larger society. Alice had her third child, her daughter Virginia, in 1899 during the first year in the House of Representatives. She decided not to run for a second legislative term, but she maintained her visionary engagement in civic and political affairs. Alice sponsored a Clean Milk for Utah campaign that resulted in more rigid inspection standards for milk and established four free milk stations in Salt Lake City that provided free refrigerated milk for underprivileged families. These efforts significantly reduced the high mortality rate of infants at the time. It was an issue that had become deeply personal for Alice after her own infant son had died in 1903. She also advocated for environmental protections, promoting clean fuel alternatives and organizing the Smokeless Fuel Federation and the Women's Chamber of, Congre of Commerce. To force the reluctant media to give more publicity to their efforts for clean air, Alice and her friends staged a demonstration on the corner of Maine and South Temple near the Brigham Young Monument. monument. Using a cook stove with smokeless coal, they baked rolls and pies while wearing white dresses and white gloves, demonstrating that they could pick up the coal and wipe the stove lid without a smudge. Alice's savvy stunt was, as usual, effective. The newspapers immediately began covering the issue of cleaner fuel. And did you know that we wouldn't still have the Eagle Gate if it wasn't for Alice? In 1936, she organized a protest demonstration to preserve this historic landmark from destruction during the widening of State Street. She and a group of women prevented its demolition by standing and surrounding each of the pillars. It's a great image to think of the next time you're passing by that gate. Always a believer in the strength of organized women working for good. Alice earnestly participated in civic organizations. She represented the Relief Society at the International Council of Women Congress in Berlin, Germany in 1904. She spoke twice at this large international conference of women's leaders, first on the Utah art movement and second on women in politics, describing her own experiences as a state legislator. 
Emmeline B. Wells, in the Women's Exponent, described Alice's participation in this gathering of, quote, the great body of earnest, brilliant, strong-minded women who are uniting their forces for the betterment of the world. Alice devoted much of her life to the betterment of her world. She served on the Grain Saving Committee, chaired the Salt Lake County Democratic Party and the Utah International Peace Committee. She served on the General Board of the Relief Society for 14 years. She chaired the Relief Society Art Committee and was vice chair of the committee for the Relief Society School of Obstetrics and Nursing. She presided over the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers and served as a state regent of the Daughters of the Revolution. Honestly, it's a bit exhausting to think of all that Alice accomplished while raising her five children, her five surviving children. So I have five little kids at home right now. I will tell you, it is all consuming. I don't know how she did it, but she seems to have found at least some degree of that elusive balance between her public and private life. Shortly after ending her legislative service, she observed the need to remain engaged in the community and in personal intellectual improvement. She wrote, a life consumed by following society's unprofitable and foolish fashions has a parallel in that of a woman who never takes a moment for study and self-improvement, but makes herself a very slave to her home. The home must be kept sweet and clean, but the brain is as prone to get cobwebby as the best room. So when I first read this, I thought, yikes, I've definitely had times when my brain has gotten cobwebby, especially after my twins were born. <laughs> There's certainly wisdom in Alice's advice. The honors that she received later in life were definitely well-deserved. Alice Merrill Horn was one of the first inductees to the Salt Lake City Council of Whitman's Hall of Fame. And she received a Medal of Honor for her civic service from the Academy of Western Culture. She spent her life actively and anxiously engaged in good works, repeatedly stepping into the public sphere to boldly advocate for the betterment of the community. The third and final lesson that I want to highlight tonight is the importance of supporting each other. While Alice was an accomplished artist in her own right, her most enduring legacy was her tireless devotion to supporting other artists in Utah. Even in the midst of all her political, religious, and civic responsibilities, Alice remained passionate about promoting the arts she devoted much of her time and energy to sponsoring art exhibitions in the community and the public schools, advancing the state art collection and mentoring local Utah artists. In later years, she was affectionately known as Mother Horn by the many artists that she helped. Alice emphasized public access, not just to art, but to good art for all Utah residents a vision made possible by the state art collection. She further believed that all children, no matter their parents' financial means, should have direct and daily access to high-quality original art. So she formed over three dozen art collections that were then displayed in Utah public schools. 
This emphasis on public access to art did not diminish art sales, but rather increase artists' exposure and spurred purchases by the state collection and other patrons. Alice reached a broad audience of women throughout the state. As a prolific writer of articles, artist biographies, and exhibition reviews that endorsed individual artists. She highlighted many female Latter-day Saint artists in a three-part series in the Relief Society magazine entitled A Few of Our Gifted Utah Artists, as well as in the pages of the Young Women's Journal and the Women's Exponent, bringing notoriety and popular recognition to their work. As a member of the General Board of the Relief Society, she produced a comprehensive art curriculum for the women of the church and published her book, Devotees and Their Shrines, a Utah Art Handbook, in 1914. This handbook, which served as the Relief Society guide for art education, also presented the work of those local artists. Alice used her influence to promote art sales and advised her readers in each home should hang a good picture, no matter how small. She understood the financial challenges of the profession and facilitated the sale of art by local artists so that they could earn a livelihood and keep creating. She would pragmatically say, they cannot paint if they cannot eat. Alice's efforts as an advocate, agent, and art dealer helped promote and sustain early Utah artists, such as Mahanrai Young, J.T. Harwood, John Hafen, Mary Teasdale, Minerva Tykert, Florence well, uh, Ware, and Henry Moser. She presented hundreds of fine arts exhibitions, both at her own gallery in the Salt Lake Avenues, as well as in prominent venues throughout the state. Minerva Tykert is one of the artists that might have remained in obscurity if it had not been for Alice's influence. Minerva was living on a rural, rural ranch up in Wyoming and was struggling to make ends meet during the Great Depression. So she traveled to Salt Lake City in search of a wider market. She met with Alice, who told Minerva she was already fully booked for more than a year with exhibitions. The Church History Library has Alice's notes describing this first meeting. Minerva simply said, Mrs. Horn, please look at my work, and unrolled her mural of the handcarts. Alice records her amazement upon first seeing Minerva's work. She immediately recognized her talent and said, I shall have the show for you in two weeks. I will push the other artists all up to make room for you. Alice also noted that she wept and wept as she hung the murals for the exhibition. Quote, thinking no one on the ranches could understand this gifted one. She was determined that people would come to know this exceptional artist. Within months, Minerva was receiving accolades in major Utah newspapers. Alice helped Minerva find several buyers for her work, which allowed her family to keep the ranch. In the 1930s, Alice regularly guided potential buyers to Minerva and placed 60 of her murals throughout Utah. She also brokered a deal with BYU to give scholarships to Minerva's children in exchange for murals. Minerva Tykert's meteoric ascent culminated in her becoming the first woman invited to paint a temple mural. Minerva Tykert spoke at her dear friend Alice Merrill Horn's funeral in 1948 
and paid tribute to Alice on behalf of the dozens of artists she had helped. She said, Always was this great woman looking after the welfare of the artists, hoping they would be able to make a go of it financially and still grow in spirit. Few people are so forgetful of self. I have eaten with her, wept and prayed with her. I have dreamed with her. How great were her dreams. Today, it is still just as important to dream and to support each other in these dreams. This Certain Women exhibition is magnifying the legacy left by Alice Merrill Horn by fostering and promoting the artistic talents of Latter-day Saint women, whose artwork captures their deep, deep faith and purpose. At Better Days 2020, we are also trying to honor Alice's legacy. It's part of our commitment to popularize Utah women's history in creative and communal ways. As Nyland mentioned, we commissioned local artist Brooke Smart, who's here tonight, to create these incredible 50 illustrations of Utah's key women's advocates. I invite you to come up and look at these afterwards that are here on display, and um, the rest of them are in the little boxes of trading cards that you can get tonight. Um, including, of course, Alice Merrill Horn. <laughs> Brooke's extraordinary illustrations celebrate the strong, influential, and brave women of our past. We couldn't be more thrilled with her work. And Brooke's art is also included here in the Certain Women exhibit right here mm -hmm. on this side. Okay, I would like to leave you tonight with Alice's vision of our potential. She wrote... Every spirit which enters mortality comes stamped with infinity, with a power to reach out and grow illimitably. Each soul has a higher duty to discover his own infinity. Though it necessitates devotion and sacrifice, listen to the infinite of your soul when it calls. Alice Merrillhorn dedicated her life and her political voice to promoting the arts in Utah. Upon her death, a memorial published in the Relief Society magazine concluded, her life was broad and beautiful. She lived fully and richly and helped all who knew her to partake of the same bounty. Really, what better tribute could we each ask for at the end of our lives? Let us all be more like Alice. Let us discover our own infinity what we have each been commissioned to do, and devote ourselves to developing our gifts. Let us recognize and reflect the beauty around us and let art spiritually transform our souls. Let us boldly use our voices to improve our communities. Let us lift and support others along the way, fostering sisterhood and unity while celebrating our diversity and individuality. Let us live fully and richly and act with clear purpose. Let us be certain women. Thank you. I would like to thank Rebecca Ryan Clark for her lecture, Nyland McBain, and everyone at Better Days 2020. 
can learn more about all the great work they are doing and find ways to participate at betterdays2020.com, and that's the numbers 2020. This lecture marked the end of the Certain Women Art Show for 2019, an exhibition that brought together nearly 100 Latter-day Saint artists creating original works as a statement of their identities. Seeing their art and interviewing several of the women who participated and organized the exhibition was one of the great privileges of my life. If you missed any of those interviews, you can visit our archive at zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. Thank you for listening to the Zion Art Podcast. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you.